we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at 1 Corinthians this morning. 1 Corinthians is the book that we are going to be preaching through this spring, and um, we are on week two of it today. So last week we looked at the introduction of the book, the first couple verses. Today we're going to look at kind of the middle part of chapter one, and so you can open up your Bible to 1 Corinthians. What you need to know about this church, if you missed last week, it is a mess. Welcome to church. Kyle and Stacy, welcome to Park Community Church. We're a mess. Every church that you've been at is a mess. Any church that you were considering going to is a mess. The church is a mess. 2,000 years ago, there was a church in the city of Corinth, the ancient city of Corinth, which is modern-day Greece. This church was a mess. Every, like, heinous, hideous sin, everything that you would judge another person doing, this church was involved in and doing. And yet, the church is the mess that God loves. I'm tempted as, we, as I read this book to think that this church is worse than our church or worse than the church in America in its current state, but I don't think it's true. I think all churches are messy. I think this one just has a, all their mess exposed, and it's on the page 2,000 years later for us to read about and to learn from. And so we're going to keep walking through this book this spring, and I trust God's going to use it to, to encourage us and to build us up in faith. I'm going to ask that you stand as I read our text for this morning. It is 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verses 10 through 17, 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 17, it's on page 952 in the Pew Bible. The Apostle Paul writes this letter to the church in Corinth. He says, I appeal to you, I appeal to you brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be, not, you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except for Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not remember whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Lord Jesus, we want the power of your cross in our lives today and and perpetually. So I pray that as we pause our schedules this morning, as we pause the, the things that consume our attention and our minds and our hearts and our schedules, I pray that we would experience your power afresh and anew this morning, the power of the cross of Jesus Christ and the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the power of the new life that we have in Jesus Christ. May you use this book this spring to form us into apprentices, disciples of Jesus. May you use these verses this morning to crush the idolatry in our heart of leaders. For your glory, for our good, and the advancement of your gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have a seat. I love this question in verse 13. Is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? And the the biblical answer, the spiritual answer is no, Christ is not divided. And the question is why? Why is his body so divided? Why is his church, capital C, around the world, church, capital C, in America, church, lowercase c, in local communities so divided? 
Paul says, is, is Christ divided? No. He, it's a rhetorical question. He's trying to make a point to this church in Corinth who is extremely divided. And, and they were divided over the lines of leadership idolatry. That's a word that I want you to lock away this morning and, and keep that phrase in mind as we walk through this text. Leadership idolatry. And we're going to see the type of leadership idolatry that was happening here in this church. And there's going to be a ton that applies to us in our day. But, but I think some of you have experienced it, right? Leadership idolatry, and, and before I kind of dive into leadership idolatry, just consider some of your own experiences with the church. Paul says in verse 10, I, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, that you be united in the same mind and of the same judgment. Has your experience in a local church been more of unity, one-mindedness, everybody agreeing, being of the same judgment? Or has it been more like verse 11 and 12 where he says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. One of you says, I follow Paul. One of you says, I follow Calvin. One of you says, I follow Apollos. One of you says, I follow Arminian theology. One of you says, I follow Cephas. One of you says, the spirit no longer exists in the church. The spiritual gifts are dead. One of you says, I follow Christ. One of you says, no, the spirit is alive. The gifts are here and present. Your own experience in the church, in my observation of the church, and I'm talking like kind of larger than just part community church. By God's grace, we are extremely unified, I think, in my experience. You are an incredible church, and I love you. But we swim in this water, in this cultural reality, where we have conservative churches and progressive churches. We have charismatic and non-charismatic churches. We have Protestant churches and Catholic churches. We have Calvinism churches and Arminian churches. When, when I got into Bible college and, and I was really hungry for the Lord, I loved the Bible and I loved people and I felt called into ministry and I knew nothing about church division really at this time. I had a great experience in the church. I grew up in a church that just had a lot of unity and there wasn't like theological camps and stuff. We didn't even talk about that stuff. And then I got into Bible college and all of a sudden I started hearing about John Piper's church and Greg Boyd's church. Different theological perspectives. And all of a sudden, I'm, I'm aware of these, these divides in these churches over theological lines, over personalities. We have white churches, we have black churches, we have churches that have a certain style of music, churches that change the style of music, churches who, right? This is the reality. I mean, you, you go on social media and you see churches competing with one another. This ad often pops up on my social media, and that's why I'm trying to stay off of social media because it's just heinous and I hate it. But there's this ad that pops up of a church in our, in our cities that is trying to draw you in by saying that they have the best bathrooms of all the churches in the Twin Cities. That's, that's, their, that's their appeal to you. We have better bathrooms. Come and check us out. Is Christ divided? No. Well, then why does it seem like his church is so divided. And, and I don't know about you, I'm personally just sick of the dividing lines. I, I, I'm tired of people fighting with each other over secondary doctrines or over personality or over style. And, and I think it, it really stems from, uh, there's a ton of idolatry that it stems from. We're going to talk a lot about idolatry in this sermon series. I think one of the key idolatries here infecting the church in Corinth, and I think one of the key idolatries affecting the church, at least in America, maybe around the world, is leadership idolatry. And so that's what we're going to dive into this morning. This church is filled with leadership idolatry, and we're going to see how it works its way out throughout the book. Uh, first, let's just look at verse 10. 
Paul says, I I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. After, so if you missed last week, verses one through nine, Paul is, Paul is, addressing the church. He's reminding them of their identity. He's setting up to start this book that their identity is, is in Christ. And we're going to talk about that at the end of the sermon here, so I'm not going to spend too much time on that right now. But, but just if you missed last week, verses 1 through 9, he's reminding the church of who they are, of whose they are, that their identity is in Jesus. And now he's going to start to address the idols because we fight our idolatry with our identity. And so he starts to fight the idol. Verse 10, he, he appeals for unity with the authority of Jesus that word in verse 10, I appeal. I plead, I long with you, church. And he does this with the authority of Jesus. He's not saying his own pastoral authority. He's not not using his personality or his influence or his position in the church. He's pleading with the authority of Jesus. I plead with you, I beg with you, church, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, now he's treading on the territory of possibly taking the Lord's name in vain, right? If you're going to appeal to the greater authority, you better make sure that you're lining up with what God actually wants. Paul feels pretty confident here to say, on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you put anything on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that isn't true and right and of God, you're using his name in vain. Paul is confident here that to appeal to the church to be unified is a good appeal that's rightly using the name of the Lord. He appeals for unity in the church using the authority of the name Jesus. Look at these words. He says, I plead with you, I appeal to you in the name of Jesus that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you. You know what the Greek word agree is in Greek? It's to agree. You know what the Greek word for divisions is in the Greek? Divisions. It's not that novel, right? Sometimes we overcomplicate it. Like, well, what's he really getting at here? He's telling the church to be united. He's saying, agree, there should be no divisions among you. You you ought to be united and of the same mind and judgment. He's not telling the church to be uniform, right? That everyone has to think the same thing, say the same thing, believe exactly the same thing. This church is incredibly diverse. The church in Corinth in the first century was incredibly diverse. It had Jews who had become Christians, it had Gentiles who had become Christians, it had people all over the the socioeconomic status, it had people with different political views, it had people all over the spectrum of background and culture and language even. And and as we go through this book, we're going to see how this diversity kept colliding with each other. But what Paul is saying here is that in the midst of your diversity, don't lean into division, lean into unity. I'm not asking for you to have uniformity, but I'm asking you to have unity in the midst of your diversity. That's Paul's appeal to the church. And then Paul moves from there into identifying leadership idolatry. So he starts, I love how Paul does this. He does this over and over again throughout the book. He starts by by giving them the positive appeal, the positive plea, and then he addresses the idol. So he wants to call out a true identity and what it really looks like to be formed and shaped as the family, the body, the family of God, the body of Christ. And then he's going to address the things that hinder our unity as a family. Verse 11, he says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people, and it's believed that Chloe was likely in Ephesus where Paul was when he wrote the book of, of Corinth. 
He was in Ephesus planting a church there. If you remember, Paul was the pastor of this church for a year and a half. Then he moved on to plant other churches in other cities. Chloe was, was possibly a member of the church in Ephesus who had people who worked in Corinth. It's believed that Chloe was a wealthy businesswoman who had employees. And whatever, whatever the relationship there is, some of Chloe's people, some of her friends, her family, her coworkers, her employees, they had reported to Paul in Corinth that the church that he founded, they had reported to Paul in Ephesus that the church that he founded in Corinth was quarreling. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. When we see brothers throughout this book, we're going to see the term brothers over and over again. It can apply to brothers and sisters in Christ in this culture, in this context. They use the word brothers. It, it's... it's just fit their culture. It applies to all of us in the church. It's not just to the men in the church. It says, it's been reported to me that, that you're arguing. Look at verse 12. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, Paul, the founding pastor of this church, one of the apostles. So there's a faction in the church of people who follow Paul. I follow Apollos, Apollos came to the church in Corinth after Paul left, and he was known as an incredible orator. He, he spoke with eloquent wisdom. He was a brilliant speaker. Paul, throughout the letter, we're going to see that Paul didn't care so much about being a brilliant speaker. He wanted to proclaim the gospel and see people's lives change. Apollos, as he proclaimed the gospel, people loved to sit and listen. In the city of Corinth, there was a ton of orators. Like that, that was one of their hobbies, is going to theaters and going to places and listening to orators. They just loved to hear spoken word and to hear people. It's like TED Talks on steroids in Corinth. And Apollos was that. So you have people who are like, I, I, I follow Apollos. Man, that guy's easy to listen to. He's so engaging, so good, so intellectual. I follow Cephas. Cephas is Peter. Cephas is Peter. So there's people who say, no, he, 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 was like, he was like the first disciple who followed Jesus. He's the brash one. He presses forward. He's, he's the one who Jesus said, upon Peter, I will build my church. And, and I'm going to go back. I, I don't, I'm not sure that I trust Paul. I'm not sure that I trust Apollos. Peter, he's the one that we really ought to be listening to. And then others would say, I follow Christ. Now, that's the right answer, Right? It could also just be the pious answer that people are trying to trump everyone else with, right? Have you ever been in that? It's called the Jesus juke, where it's like, well, I just follow Jesus. I just listen to worship music. I just read the Bible. I don't need to read books. I just pray. I don't, you know? And so here's these divisions in the church. I mean, can you imagine how people would, would get behind Paul, the founding pastor? Well, he started our church. God used him in power to plant this thing He's the guy that we ought to listen to. He's the authority here. You imagine how people would say, well, Apollos, man, that guy. When he speaks, everything makes sense. He's our authority. Peter, that guy pressed ahead. and Jesus used him, the Holy Spirit used him to, to explode this movement. Remember a couple of years ago in Jerusalem when all the Jews were in Jerusalem and Peter got up and he spoke and thousands came to know the Lord in Acts chapter 1, 2, and 3, the beginning of the church? No, we, we got to get back to Peter's teachings. Well, and then there's Jesus. Don't forget Jesus. He's, he's really the one who's in charge here. And so just imagine all of this going on. I'm going I'm to give you a list of some common leadership idolatry in the church, and I think it's, it's, it's true of our church 
here and now, today, 2,000 years later, it's also true of this church in Corinth. Some common leadership idolatries in the church. There's cult of personality and celebrity Christianity. There's teacher-preacher patronage, theological partisanship and snobbery, personal priorities dictating pastoral duties, ministry philosophy and gift projection, spiritual pedigree and pious religiosity, or the Jesus juke. Here's how some of this was working its way out in this church. And and, and I think you're going to be able to apply some of your experiences of the American church as we talk about this cult of personality or celebrity Christianity. Apollos, great speaker, large crowds, large following. Right? Can you think about how you've maybe been influenced over the years by there's a certain personality, a certain, a certain movement, a certain church that's growing, a certain prominent voice on the, on the blogs or the podcasts. And, and like there's, there's, this, there's this idol in the human heart where, where we have a, like an attachment to influence. Maybe you're not a social influencer, but you found a spiritual leader who's a social influencer, and it feels really good to repost, to retweet, to, to, to regurgitate what you hear from them. Cult of personality. Celebrity Christianity. It's crushing the church. When people are listening more to pastors that are, that are famous, that you've never met, they don't know your name, they don't pray for you, they don't care about your soul. Well, maybe they do. Um, but it sure does feel good for those pastors to get a following and we're products of that. I'm a product of this. I'm a pastor. I'm not preaching as a pastor at you. I'm preaching as a, as a brother in Christ. This is a common idol that we have. Or preacher, teacher, patronage. It, I mean, actually, if you listen to some podcasts, they'll, they'll, they'll give you free content, and then they'll say, if you want to become a patron supporter. You know what that means? It means you make a donation so you can get more content. And then all of a sudden, we start to, we start to be kind of tied into to a, one voice or a couple voices. It's like, I have to listen to what this teacher says about everything. Have you ever been in a situation where you've, you've heard a sermon or you've been reading the Bible and your first thought is, I need to go see what so-and-so has to say about this. Rather than, I need to spend some time rereading and rereading and praying and asking God to reveal to me what to think about this, right? That's, that's preacher-teacher patronage where it's like, I, 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 I'm, I'm invested so therefore, I have to listen to what they say. Theological partisanship and snobbery. Right? Churches built off of a certain doctrinal system. Secondary doctrines. We're not, we're not talking here about professing that Jesus is Lord. That's what Paul is doing in this book. He's reminding them of the essentials, of the basics. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Paul's not Lord. Apollos isn't Lord. Peter isn't Lord. Yes, Jesus Christ is Lord. But make sure you're actually following him, not just using his name to try and one-up others spiritually. And the, the church here is dividing. There, there, was, there was some divides. Peter and Paul, early on in the church, they had some they had some riffs about how Jews ought to, or how Gentiles ought to become Christians. Do they have to adopt Jewish customs? There was different thoughts and, and some different theological understanding behind that. And then the church was tempted to kind of be snobbish towards one another and, and, and to have partisan, like, give more attention to certain interpretations, certain secondary doctrines. 
personal priorities which dictate pastoral duties. I love, just personally, pastorally, I love that Paul says here in verse 16, there's in parentheses, and people think the reason that happens is because a lot of these letters, Paul is speaking to the church, and there's a scribe who's writing it down. And as Paul's speaking this, and he's saying, I, I thank God that I didn't baptize any of you except for Crispus and Gaius, so that no one of you may, uh, may say that you were baptized in my name. I actually think the scribes were like, well, actually, he forgot. He baptized Stephanus and, and a couple others, and so Adam down, and like, that's, that's what a lot of people think this is here in parentheses. But I love that Paul, that it says, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. Could you see how this could be offensive to the church? He forgot that he baptized me? He forgot that he dedicated my baby? He forgot my name? He forgot that prayer request that I told him? Because some people value in the church a pastor who knows everything and knows everybody's name and is involved in everything. And here Paul is saying, yeah, for one, I'm grateful that I didn't baptize you because that gives you, they're using whoever baptized them as to like, well, this pastor baptized me, therefore my allegiance is to that pastor. And and he's saying, there's a difference of duties in the church. Not everyone is gifted in, in the same way. And just because people in the church think a certain thing about a pastoral role, that doesn't force the pastor to act in that way. Paul's saying, I was, I was called, my, my calling is to proclaim the gospel, not to be a baptizer of people. Though I will baptize, that's not my main ministry priority. And that bleeds into this next bullet point, bullet point here, ministry philosophy and gift projection. Different pastors, these, all these pastors, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, and Christ, they all had a little different purpose a little different ministry focus, a little different ministry philosophy, the way that they went about ministry, a, a different spiritual gift. In the family of God, there's different spiritual gifts. Those who have administration usually think everyone else should have administration and they're frustrated when other people can't administer a thing, right? Those who teach think that everybody else should be able to teach and they're frustrated when people don't care about teaching. Those who care about excellence in singing think that everyone should care about excellence in singing, and they're frustrated when people don't care about excellence in singing. Those who, who, who like have gifts of mercy and care, and they care for the lost and the broken and the, the, the down and out, they're the people who bring a meal train every single time that there's a meal train posted. They think that other people should care more about that, and, and they start to judge other people for not caring about that or just feel burdened because other people aren't helping to carry that load. And so this is part of the idolatry in the church, and then it's put upon pastors. That's what's happening here in this church. Well, Paul, I wish he would preach like Apollos. Apollos, I wish he had the kind of faith of Peter. Ministry philosophy and gift projection, spiritual pedigree. Throughout the book, there's, there's, there's argumentation about like kind of the family line that they came from, the schooling, the credentials, the rabbis that they studied under, and sometimes we give more, more right? Like we value a certain school, a certain education, a certain sem- seminary, a certain experience. And then I already talked about this, but the last one, pious religiosity. I, I think actually Paul's throwing in, I follow Christ. Not as a teaching here, he's adding it into the list of comparisons, saying, you say, I follow Paul, Apollos, Cephas, I follow Christ. It's the Jesus juke, right? It's just that pious person who's like, I just follow Jesus. What I encourage you to do, church family, is to find your idolatry. We all have it. 
as you look at this list, as you, as you consider the tensions here in the church in Corinth, divisions over leaders, because they're idolizing leaders, I think it's good and healthy for us to identify what our idolatries are and then just repent of it. We all have it. And there's no shame in it. It's not healthy, it's not good, but don't, don't beat yourself up or feel shame about the idolatries that you give into, but say, God, this isn't healthy or good for me or for my church, and so I surrender it to you. Would you help me grow? Bring it into the light. Confess it to others. Give it to God, and he will bring so much healing to you and unity between you and your brothers and sisters, which is the point. Now, here's what Paul does. He fights this leadership idolatry with gospel identity. And so verses 13 through 17, you know, he identifies this issue causing division in the church. They have leadership idolatry. They're comparing different leaders. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? For, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except for Crispus and Gaius. And he goes on. I already talked about that. What, what he's saying here is baptism, it's a public profession that I'm identified with Jesus that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is master, not that I'm a disciple of Paul, not that I'm a disciple of Apollos, not that I'm a disciple of Peter, I'm a disciple of Jesus. And so he's fighting this leadership idolatry that you and I have in our own hearts, that we just swim in the, the, the pool in American culture, in American Christianity. This leadership idolatry is so rampant, whether it's in the church, whether it's in politics, wherever it is, it's just there. You've experienced it. You know it. And it's doing damage to your soul. And so Paul identifies it. And then, and then he's reminding us here that we fight our idolatry with our identity. You've been baptized. Not baptized into the name of this one pastor or this one theological tradition or to this one church or the way that they do it or to this teacher or to this preacher or to this podcaster. You've been baptized into the name of Jesus. Amen? And so he's reminding them of their identity, that, that they're not identified as charismatic Christians or non-charismatic Christians, that they're not identified as Calvinists or Arminians. By the way, neither of those guys existed here, right? So isn't it just kind of absurd that we give ourselves these categories? Isn't it just like this church 2,000 years ago that today we're saying, well, I follow the line of Calvin and that tribe. I follow Armenian and that tribe. He's saying you're baptized into Jesus. And in Jesus, there's unity. You can talk about non-essentials. You can interpret verses and disagree and have healthy pushback. And, but, but at the end of the day, there must be unity among you. Have the same mind. Remember the appeal in verse 10? Have the same mind. There should be no divisions. Be united in the same judgment. And this judgment that he's talking about here is a gospel judgment that Jesus is enough, that our salvation is Jesus plus nothing, not Jesus plus the right pastor, not Jesus plus the right theological tribe, not Jesus plus the right interpretation, not Jesus plus the right opinions. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Amen? And so he reminds us of our identity, reminds us to fight leadership idolatry with our, our identity and and it's because our identity creates unity, right? Shared identity is what creates unity. Identity with a certain pastor or tribe, that creates disunity and division. But a shared identity creates unity. And so here's the, the identity that Paul has already given us here in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. Remember in verse 2, he said, you are sanctified saints. 
you're in Jesus, you're holy, you're sanctified, you are set apart, you are a saint of God. That's your primary identity, not sinner, 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 saint. You are called by God, he says in verse 2 and 9. In verse 3, he says, we are recipients of God's grace and peace. God has given you undeserved favor. He's made you whole. You will be presented blameless before God, he says in verse 8. You are called into the fellowship of the saints, he says in verse 9. You're brothers and sisters of one another. He uses this language over and over and over again throughout the book. You belong to one another. You're brothers and sisters. You're family your blood, and we are evangelical. I put that in quotes because it needs explanation for some of you. Evangelical, it comes from this word in verse 17 when Paul says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, so that's not his primary ministry, but his primary ministry is to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, he could actually put in there like Apollos because that's the issue. Some of them are comparing Paul with Apollos. I like Paulus' teaching. He has eloquent wisdom. Paul's saying, I came not preaching with eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This word evangelical comes from that word gospel. It's euangelion in the Greek, and it means the good news, the declaration of Jesus. And so when I say we are evangelicals, I don't mean that that has nothing to do with politics. Politics brings division. Leadership idolatry related to politics brings division. This word means that we are people who are transformed by the gospel, the proclamation of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And that's what Paul is saying here. I came proclaiming the good news of Jesus and you are a family formed. We are a community of people formed around the gospel, around the good news. We are evangelicals. You don't, I don't care what you think about that term. You don't have to use that, the English translation of euangelion. You can use gospel. We're gospels. We're gospel-formed people. We believe in the gospel. We're united in the gospel. But this is what it means for us. This is how we fight our leadership idolatry is by reminding one another of our true identity, clinging to our shared identity. That's where unity comes from. And so church, this morning as we take communion together, every Sunday at Park Community Church we take communion because we want to be reminded that we're united around Jesus, right? Not whether the sermon was an A, B, C, D, or F. Not, not because the music was an A and then an A and then an A and on a random Sunday you get a C. Eh, a B. A minus. You know, not, not because, yes, everyone in my church thinks this author should be read by all, or this podcaster should be listened to. But we're not united around that junk. We're united around Jesus, the man who lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death, and overcame sin and death in the grave for us. The one who made it true for us to be called the sanctified saints, called by God, recipients of God's grace, those who will be presented guiltless, saints called together into fellowship, brothers and sisters of one another, and evangelicals or gospel-formed people. Amen? And so when you come to Park Community Church on Sundays, know that we're going to spend some time taking communion together. And so I want to invite you, if your desire is to follow Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus, these elements are here to remind you that that's what unites us. We're, you might, we're united around a man. And so on the night before Jesus was crucified, he sat with his disciples and he took the bread 
and he passed it to them. You can pull back that first layer and pull out the wafer. He passed it to them and he said, as often as you're together, eat this bread. It's a reminder that my body was given for you. Let's eat together. And after they shared the bread, Jesus took a cup and he passed it to his disciples. And he said, when you gather, drink of this cup to be reminded of the the shedding of my blood. For in the shedding of my blood, there is forgiveness for your sins. And he passed it. And so we drink to be reminded of the forgiveness of our sins in Jesus. Let's drink together. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are and for what you've done. Lord, I repent of my own leadership idolatry. I'm a, I'm a pastoral leader, but I have other pastor leaders that I idolize. And it has caused me to divide with brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I repent of that. Lord, that, that list of idolatries, I, I can find examples of me being guilty of every one of those. And I repent. Help me to continually repent of that. Lord, help us as a family to repent of our idols, and specifically this morning as we look at this text, our leadership idols. And may we cling to our unity and our identity in you. For your glory, for our good, and the advancement of your gospel, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.